0: Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. When most people in Washington talk about the military, they are usually talking about budgets and buying new weapon systems. Far less attention is devoted to how the Pentagon manages its people. And this has long been a source of frustration for me. The military is primarily a people business. This was one of the central messages of John Boyd, the great American military theorist. He taught that the priorities of the military should always be people, ideas, hardware, in that order. For example, without the right person at the controls, even the best fighter plane in the world will be outmatched in the sky. After the first Gulf War, when commentators were attempting to explain the overwhelming defeat of the Iraqi forces, many said our superior technology was what made the difference. General Norman Schwarzkopf, though, threw cold water on that notion when he said that the coalition could have swapped weapons with the Iraqis and the results would have been exactly the same. What he meant by that was we had the right people with the right ideas, and the weapons they use were only tools. This is why I believe it's important for the military to have the right personnel system. While the military does a good job of attracting great people already, its track record of keeping them and ensuring they are put in the right positions leaves much to be desired. And this is why several successive defense secretaries have tried to make reform the personnel system a priority. Ash Carter began his tenure in 2015 by announcing his Force of the Future initiative. It largely floundered due to a lack of broad support. Many of its most sweeping proposals required changes to federal law, and so far there has been little serious effort to accomplish this. Secretary Carter's focus was also somewhat misguided in my judgment. Force of the Future almost wholly dealt with making sure the military could compete with the Googles of the world and attracting people with technical skills. While it is important to have people who are comfortable with technology, this is actually not the most important reason to, to reform the personnel system. Success in combat requires people capable of exercising great initiative, people who are willing to take risk in the absence of orders and sometimes to act in contradiction to orders. But the current system actually discourages this kind of behavior. Rigid promotion timelines impersonal evaluation systems and the 20-year vested pension system has incentivized a careerist mentality among service members. And by this, I mean people in uniform basically have two choices. They can go along to get along, which is to play it safe uh, so they can make it to 20 years and collect their retirement, or they can be bold and do the things necessary to improve their service and by extension, better serve the nation. This requires rocking the boat occasionally, which has the possibility of displeasing a superior. One black mark on a service member's record could mean getting passed over for promotion. And under the current up or out policy, people must continually get promoted or they will be forced from the service. Changes to the retirement system will soon fix some of the problems of a vested pension, but the other problems that foster a spirit of careerism still remain. And as retired Marine Colonel G.I. Wilson once wrote, Careers serve for all the wrong reasons. They weaken national defense, rob the military of its warrior ethos, and drive away the very highly principled mavericks that we need to reverse the decay. True military reform creates a culture that identifies, nurtures, and protects strength of character and moral courage. Strength of character in the context of military leadership includes the seeking of and joy in taking responsibility and in making difficult decisions. A person with strength of character does what is right, regardless of who is watching, or the consequences to their careers. The way the military manages its talent affects this immeasurably. Battlefield initiative is of course the most important issue. The current system creates a situation where officers are constantly competing for the assignments needed to be eligible for promotion rather than focusing on developing the skills they need to succeed in combat. The current system also helps nurture wasteful practices here in Washington. Let's say an officer is on a team working to develop an an expensive weapon system, and this person sees a major problem with the program. Raising these concerns might put the program in jeopardy, which could then threaten their boss's career. And as much as we would like to think that most people would have the moral courage to do the right thing for their country, most people just go along to get along, because that is exactly what the current system incentivizes. So I am interested any time I come across a serious effort to reform the military's personnel system. And one person who has done a great deal of work on this issue is Dr. Tim Kaine. He is an Air Force Academy graduate and a former intelligence officer who left the service to earn a Ph.D. in economics. His book, Bleeding Talent, How the U.S. Military Mismanages Great Leaders and Why It's Time for a Revolution, has done much to shape the debate in recent years. He is now with the Hoover Institution, where, until recently, he worked with the current Defense Secretary, James Mattis. Dr. Kane recently published a report called The Total Volunteer Force. In it, he proposes several reforms to the personnel system and what it would take to see them realized. I had the opportunity this week to chat with him about his plan, and to find out what he thinks is wrong with the current system.
1: A friend of mine was serving as an intelligence officer. He'd been in for about 12 years, and uh, the the first Gulf War kicked off, and he was a targeting officer. And you know, when you've trained to do a mission and your nation asks you to do a mission, uh, it's it's a pretty intoxicating feeling and um, there were long periods of history where we haven't our military's been there to prevent war primarily and so when there hasn't been a conflict can be some frustration well suddenly this individual had a chance to put his skills to use we were hunting bad guys in Afghanistan primarily and the Air Force reached out rang his phone one day and said I mean this is two or three days into the conflict uh, and, and a lot of that conflict was driven by air power in the early days. And they said, hey, congratulations. You you are such a lucky officer. We're going to send you back to get your master's degree. <laughs> and and then he said, you've already sent me back for two master's degrees. I don't need a third. I don't want to go. And they're like, well, this is a this is an opportunity you can't refuse. And he turned him down and he was threatened with being expelled from the Air Force if he didn't go take third master's degree. And it was so obvious they needed a warm body to fill a slot that they at one point decided they needed. And so uh, he he had to go home and tell his wife, I quit the Air Force after 12 years. We're not going to have medical care. We're not going to have that pension. Instead, I'm going to go work as a civilian so I can do my job. So he gave it all up to serve his country. That to me was just a heartbreaking story of trying to tell airmen and soldiers and sailors and marines that the system knows better than you uh, what's good for the country, it's not always true. There's a mindless bureaucracy behind a lot of these rules. And uh, so the needs of the Army sometimes are not clear, and the bureaucrats do not know the needs of the Army better than the soldiers and commanders. We need to readjust that balance.
0: Well, what about the some of the consequences of the, of the system and that mindless bureaucracy? Because there has been a lot said about how it fosters a spirit of careerism. Can you explain some of, the, some of the negative consequences that the current system has? Yeah, I think
1: there's, it's pretty widely understood that there can be a, a careerist mindset and, and there can be some confusion about where it comes from. But as an economist, when I look at these things now, I left the service, went back to get a PhD. Uh, and so I look with sort of new eyes at the time I was serving and the choices that people made. And economists think about incentives. What is the incentive structure? That will tell you where your culture gets formed. A lot of the military has a really powerful incentive structure built around purpose and tradition. And when I looked in the numbers, doing these wonky correlations, the sense of purpose is one of the greatest benefits for why retention is strong in the military. You were able to keep good people in uniform. But the perverse incentives that force rotations all the time, uh, the perverse one-size-fits-all upper route—you've got to get promoted. You may be the best pilot in the navy, but we don't care. You've got to go take a management job. That—that is—that um, is a really perverse incentive. And if maybe someone recognizes, I'm not good at being a manager. I guess I'll get out and fly for the airlines. That's—that's um, that's a pointless loss of talent. So. Um, Yeah, I think looking at incentives is going to be the key as we walk through this, whether it's job matching incentives, whether it's compensation incentives in retirement, uh, how our promotion system works, or how do we evaluate people. And unfortunately, our performance evaluations, and I say this, you're a Marine, right, Dan? Mm -hmm. Marines have a really good performance evaluation system. They haven't always, you know, two decades ago, it was just as bad as the disaster that we see in the Army and the Air Force. But the incentives in an eval system tend to be make no mistakes and you're gonna pretty much get a perfect evaluation. Now, there'll be different code words that we use this decade or maybe five years ago they had different code words. Maybe your commander's not up to speed on the latest code words, but the numeric side of it and the quantitative side of it, it's a it's a game that people have to play and it that upper out driver with these stilted performance evaluations, I think really perverts the strong leadership culture. Um, That if we let the leadership culture uh, and integrity dominate instead of the bureaucratic um, personnel system, that we'd we'd find our military values would steer a lot more toward the profession of arms and away from the careerism
0: of our modern bureaucracy. I first became aware of your work by reading Bleeding Talent, and I'm sure that's where a lot of people did, and I was fascinated by the results of the survey that you conducted in that. But I'm interested yeah. more in just how you really got involved in this. I mean you were an active duty Air Force officer, Air oh. Force Academy graduate, and then you became an a you know professional economist. And so how does how does that blend of experience kind of meld into what you're doing now with personnel
1: reform? So that's funny, Dan. I was I was at a think tank where I've spent a lot of my career for the last decade and uh, the head of that think tank was asked to work with uh, you know, some working group for the Pentagon. I wasn't actually part of the working group, but we huddled up with him uh, because the question was, how can we help promote economic growth and particularly entrepreneurship in Afghanistan and Iraq and help you know, rebuild those economies? And I just I had to laugh and I was the only one in the room in this in, in, I think in the entire think tank who'd served on active duty. And I said, I don't understand how we're going to instruct, you know, a 21-year-old or 22-year-old uh, sergeant in the army how to be entrepreneurial so that he can then teach Afghanis who, believe me, if you're not entrepreneurial in Afghanistan, you die. Like, there's no big corporation you go work for. It's all hand-to-mouth. That, that's how developing economies work. So it's, <laughs> as a development guy, I've studied economic development, taught classes on it. You really want to channel that natural entrepreneurship and create the right set of institutions. And so I made that remark of, if there's anybody that needs how to learn how to be entrepreneurial, it's the US Army. And so that led to an article and conversations with buddies who were serving and uh, still on active duty in the Army. Um, and I wrote an article in The Atlantic that I, I didn't think it would even get picked up by The Atlantic, but it did. And they have great editors, so they made the writing a lot better than I, what I do. And uh, it, that became sort of a touchstone and it was pretty easy to get a book contract after that and expand on, again, my attitude is, I don't know what the Army's like. Let me go survey um, officers in the Army. And I reached out to West Point grads. Funny thing is, I wanted to do a broader survey with the Army. But if you want to be critical of the Army bureaucracy, you need to ask the Army bureaucracy's permission to run a survey. And I never got permission. So, so I just did it from the outside. Well, I'll tell you, with this new approach, um, we have a book coming out called Total Volunteer Force in June and we issued a summary report uh, from the Hoover Institution Press. So what I wanted to do with Total Volunteer Force was apply another survey that was broader, included all the services enlisted as well as active duty and veterans uh, and officers, so the whole gamut. And it wasn't just critical. It's like tell us if this is a strength or a weakness. And of course what we found was in category after category, the leadership culture was incredibly strong. Teamwork, values, mentorship, all the services, strong. But when you turn to talent management practices, other than training, training was very, it came back as very strong. But compensation and job matching promotions and um, performance evaluations were just devastating, very negative. Now these were the exact same people. So there's not sour grapes, you don't have veterans saying, gosh, I hated everything about my time in the Marine Corps. No, they, they were celebrating and proud of the one aspect. But on talent management, um, whether you were an officer or an enlisted, a veteran or active duty, very critical, particularly of job matching. The fact that individuals can't control their careers and commanders were critical because they couldn't select people to serve in their units unless you're you know a flag officer. Otherwise, that powerlessness, everyone seems to agree, really hurts readiness. And that probably means, in the end, cost lives. So that then makes it a mission that's worth fighting for. Even though it's a very nerdy mission of mine,
0: um, I'm really proud to to, to uh, push this message. Well, it, it is very important. Uh, I'm, I'm interested when when you were conducting that first survey for the the Atlantic article, which right. later became a book. Were you surprised by any of the results? Oh that- my gosh!
1: You know, we I what was the we asked a question that was the military is good at dot 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 and then we had five different responses and, and it turns out that like 80 percent of the respondents thought the military was doing a bad job at, uh, at putting the right people in the right jobs. I think, I think that, that was the one that was 80 percent, um, you know, and, and just you can look at margin of error, but when you're getting questions that are saying 80 percent or 85 percent negative, uh, your margin of error is, is only about 10 percentage point max, so it was just blistering. And what was most interesting, Dan, was the active duty officers were much more critical than the folks who were retired and veterans. And veterans tend to look back on their service, and we don't see the frustration as much. We remember very fondly the camaraderie and the esprit de corps. Those are real things. You don't find that in the private sector. But the weakness of that survey was it was geared toward what's wrong, and it didn't celebrate what I was realizing um, deserves to be celebrated, which were the value system in the military. So I, I, as important as that
0: study was, I think this one's even better. Well, I, I, I have to, to tend to agree with you on that one. And when with regards to the, the total volunteer force, uh, you make a number of suggestions, and, and you go through and you explain the problem. What are some of the key takeaways? Because we'll obviously include a link to the report and people can go read uh, to their heart's content. What are the, the, the top two or three recommendations that you have that you want people to take away from? So uh, I thought this would all lead down um, a path towards,
1: here's the legislative agenda. Uh, here's what Congress needs to do. And I think I was surprised to find out how much freedom and flexibility exists within the system. That said, we'll come back to that. So, you know, commanders and the military, they can do a lot of things to improve. But the number one issue is a 1980 law called DAPMA. Uh, and that creates the mandate to have an upper out system. It says that people can only be, um, you know, not selected for promotion twice or they get kicked out. And every service has to basically look exactly the same, the same proportion, roughly, of you know, 06s to 05s to 04s to 03s and the same promotion timelines, all those things need to be reformed and they need to be reformed by Congress, not to institute a new set of promotion mandates for all the services, but to give flexibility. One one in particular still makes me laugh. So the services have the flexibility now to do below the zone promotions. I think the Air Force is the only one that really embraces that to the maximum. But the the uh, proportion of officers that can be promoted below the zone, I believe, is capped at 15% of a cohort, right? So you get a year group of officers that, you know, entered the Navy or entered the Marine Corps in uh, 1994, let's say. And so now, um, no, that's not a good time. Let's say in, in the year 2007. So now they've been in for 10 years. What proportion of them can be promoted below the zone? Any service could promote, I think it's 10%, maybe it's 15. Unless the Secretary of Defense gives them an exemption, and I think even the Secretary of Defense can only allow another 5%. <laughs> like, why? You know, if the CNO, the Chief of Naval Operations, wants to allow half of his people to be promoted one year or, God forbid, a year and a half below their peers, um, they can't have that flexibility now. And so Congress really needs to get involved, not with new mandates, but to repeal back some of those mandates and to give more authority to service chiefs. And then the service chiefs can pass that down to the uh, to their combat commanders and other commanders.
0: Okay. And we should probably, for our listeners— uh Uh, explain or define the acronym of DATMA and what that uh, what that is or if I'm putting you on the spot. That's okay. Defense Officer Personnel Management Management Act of 1980
1: and uh, yeah so Defense Officer Personnel Management Act is one of the key things and it's not so much that needs to be repealed um, because it's already been codified in law. It's that you could look back at the law and pass a new manpower act and realize where you need to grant more flexibilities. So Pretty easy. And in fact, this this report opens with a quote from John McCain and another quote from Senator Jack Reed and another quote from the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Mac Thornberry, um, all have spoken on behalf of, we need to give our services more flexibility. So you don't find disagreement on the Hill. It's just needing to make this a priority because there's so much momentum to oh, look, we need to focus on the war right now, or we need to focus on readiness or build-up or acquisition systems. Those are billion-dollar issues. Well, these are billion-dollar issues, right? The pension system is a trillion-dollar issue, but it's very easy to let institutional momentum just carry this system forward. So there's no champion on the other side saying, no, this is a great system for reason X. It's you and I and our listeners Need to just push the fact that this is a consensus. This is what the services want, and and ask Congress to act. You know, in the next two to four years.
0: Okay, uh, I I think part of the challenge in that is the is the idea or the the impetus behind the the change. Because yes, we've looked at two and and you know, Senator McCain, Senator Reed, Representative Thornberry. They have all I've all heard them express the the desire for personnel reform. Yeah, but I. They, they come at it from, from different perspectives, i.e. some of them think that we need to ha- change the way we recruit people to make sure that we're bringing enough cyber warriors and, and that kind of stuff. I yeah. don't think that they really all agree necessarily on the reason behind why this is necessary.
1: Yeah, it, you know, it, to, to turn a little bit to this issue of there's a civilian-military gap, which people focus on, well, part of the reason there's a civilian-military gap is that sort of parting of the population into who serves and who doesn't happens at the specific juncture of when you're 18 years old and you come out of high school now granted there's some people that go to college not an ROTC scholarship but they maybe they don't even join ROTC and they decide a little bit later in life when they're the ripe age of say 22 or 24 but that's rare Um, and so folks who never got on the boat you know can never get on the boat there's not room for an extremely healthy strong brilliant computer programmer who's 29 to join the military and other than you know say starting as a you know as an 01 maybe that doesn't make sense and I'm not saying that people should be given command but maybe we could do take a baby step Dan and look at combat uh, veterans who got dishonorably discharged served for five years and now they're at Google or they're at Apple or they're at a startup somewhere and they know how to code like nobody's business why don't we instead of allowing no lateral entry? Why don't we at least allow lateral re-entry of veterans who now have skills in logistics or cyber or acquisitions? And so I think you won't find anybody opposed to that idea. I I think it's pretty rare. What you find is, uh, gee, how do we deal with the pension system then? What kind of pension do we give them? So we're letting our financial structure get in the way of the desire to serve. And that's where this isn't an issue of Money versus uh, morality, or you know, profit versus uh, patriotism. Which somehow this gets cast sometimes. It's we need to let patriotism be expressed and not let our financial structure, the pension system, the pay tables, block people from the possibility of serving. So I think the service chiefs are su- super aware of that, particularly in the cyber field. But the answer to it is you know flexibility, on ramps and off ramps, which which. Uh, Ash Carter talked about. And um, so there are some nuggets that have been talked about by two, three, four previous secretaries of defense. This isn't force of the future failed, it's all over. This isn't going away. And I think there are too many young officers and now getting to be senior officers um, who will champion this. In fact, I talked about a guy in my book you may have heard of, H.R. McMaster. There's a section in Bleeding Talent, The Curious Case of H.R. McMaster, because his story is one of the personnel bureaucracy almost stopped a great military leader from uh, getting promotion. And it took intervention to overrule the system for him to, to rise. And, of course, now he's great guy, now going to be the uh, national security advisor. But um, we need to make those
0: the rule, not the exception. Right. So to, to hit on some of that—, that Uh, the resistance to this kind of change the the word on the street was that one of the reasons that a lot of the the force of the future kind of fell flat was due to resistance from the upper uh, from the senior officers in the Pentagon which is kind of understandable they have found success in the current system and so I can imagine that they would probably bristle at the thought that somebody coming in and saying that, hey, the personnel system is broken, and these guys are saying, well, hey, it worked for me. Yeah, so it worked for me. <laughs> I got here, <laughs> so it's perfect. Who's this Kane guy? Oh, he's a captain. Yeah, we don't need to remember what he said. So how do we go about overcoming some of that resistance? You know, i got to tell you,
1: when I looked at Force of the Future and the specific things that were rolled out by um, Secretary of Defense Carter and his team, I did not agree with all of it. So I can't say why uh, the service chiefs didn't like some of it. Problem is, there was maybe too much. As you throw the baby out with the bathwater, and um, and they had every right to resist some of the things they didn't like. But Senator McCain, Senator Reid, bipartisan coalition know that we need to make some reforms. You also have, separate from Force of the Future, you have the United States Navy in particular, who. Uh, are, are pushing right now with a online job matching system called TalentLink uh, and have asked for more flexibilities in the personnel arena. So the N1 and I think the CNO and the Secretary of the Navy, separate from Ash Carter, were saying, here are some things that we would like to ask Congress for more flexibility. And again, that's not going away. So I don't, I don't again, don't put too much stock into what happened with Force of the Future because uh, I'm I'm looking more at the blocking and tackling issues, and and I made, specifically in my report, 20 recommendations. And if I only get 19 of them, I'll be happy. No, I mean, three would be amazing. Um, So you have to understand it. We need piecemeal reform, step-by-step reform, not one big piece of legislation, not one big probably centralized agenda coming out of the Secretary
0: of Defense. But uh, yes, I'm really hopeful. So one of the recommendations in the total volunteer force is the the better implementation of peer reviews. You know, you you talk specifically about how the rangers do this, yeah. And and I know that in a, in a lot of other courses, when I went through armor school at Fort Knox back in 2005 or whenever that was, we had to do peer reviews, and yeah. I even did it at Officer Candidate School uh, down in Quantico. And that had some bearing on, on you know, how, how students graduated, if they graduated, that kind of stuff. Hmm. Uh, but it's not used beyond, beyond schools, really. So can you explain how you think uh, peer reviews that are a better peer review process might help make sure that we're promoting and retaining the right people?
1: Yeah, I didn't think too much about the performance evaluation system when I was in the Air Force. Uh, I think we call it the OPR. And when I was in the private sector, businesses had similar annual reviews and they, they weren't very effective. Turns out when I dug into the literature, the management literature doesn't shed a lot of light on this. Like they'll say why there are psychological reasons that bosses inflate the scores of the people that work for them. Um, okay, well, what's the best practice? So having been at Stanford and in the heart of Silicon Valley. I met numerous HR managers and talked to them about best practices. <laughs> the answer is, we're not really sure. We we heard about this Jack Welch system where you categorize the top 20% and the bottom 10%. And there are reports now that GE is dropping that system. And Microsoft found it sort of blew up in their face when they instituted what's called stack ranking. Uh, and in Bleeding Talent, I'd, I'd actually said, we should be more like GE. Well, I, I was wrong when I dug into what are the answers instead of what are the problems? What I came up with is the Army Rangers use a fantastic system of peer evaluations that help sort out the strongest and help sort out some of the weakest or who aren't right ready. Um, we experienced that when I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy, used peer evaluations to great effect. And it was a leadership learning tool as well. So when I got back, strong evaluations from my subordinates, That was, I learned that I was doing good. My peers gave me okay evaluations. The commanders didn't know who I was. I learned from that. And the fact that I realized in the military, we don't get that learning at all. So active duty troops in the Army, Navy, Air Force, nobody's using peer evaluations other than in a few small training programs like the one you went through, Dan. So I applied some economic reasoning, learned how the Rangers did it, learned about some other ways that people rank things in the world and uh, came up with a system where a couple principles. Principle one is everyone rates everyone. So if we've got a unit of 30 people or 50 people, we should all have the freedom to do what I call team rating, identify the best five people at, uh, at, at just core value to the unit. Two, teamwork. And then three, who are the top five people in terms of leadership potential? Those are all different categories, so it should be multidimensional, everybody should rate everyone, it should be anonymous, and then you should also offer some potential for feedback. But you can design a, a peer eval system that is fast and efficient, and it's all positive. So you might have two really strong dimensions and one weak dimension. Nobody's bullying you or beating up on you. Dan, they just didn't think that you were as good at teamwork as you do have leadership potential. My God, there could be so much learning. It could be done in 10 minutes in a unit. And all it would take is, you know, a, a battalion commander to say, we're gonna use this to supplement my former formal evaluations. So this is an area where the services, I think, have the freedom to, to implement. Uh, Right now, whatever sort of performance eval system they want, but local commanders could institute peer evals, and I think they should.
0: Well, that would obviously have some benefits to how we identify the the strongest leaders and the best performers and everything. But I see a potential benefit just in how the unit functions. Yeah. You know, because in that way, that would, I think, uh, could help kind of stamp out toxic leadership, which, yeah. is, which is obviously an issue. And, uh, you know, because that would, to me, it sounds like it would hold everybody accountable to everybody else. So I've, I've
1: heard uh, about the toxic leadership problem um, more, I think, in some services than others. But yeah, if, if, you have, <laughs> if you have a system where your evaluations are all top down, what's the incentive structure? You're gonna manage up. You're gonna make the unit look good in the very brief time that you're in the unit, right? These are two-year rotations. You're gonna make it look good to the bosses. And sometimes, I think most times, you get commanders who are given unit command who care a lot about their people, Um, but they don't have to. And so it could be 10, 20% that don't give a damn about their people. They wanna make sure they look good. They've got a careerist upper out incentive as well. So yeah, you can (laughs) fix that, snap of your fingers, change the incentives for how the evals get done. Knowing that my commander is going to see how my subordinates think of me relative to the other officers in the unit, um, that changes my incentive structure. And some people will adapt. Some people can adapt, but they'll be identified and then get reshuffled to jobs maybe that they're better suited for instead of command. I think we could fix the toxic leadership problem in a year.
0: Again, that was Dr. Tim Kaine. You can learn more about military personnel reform, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can also follow us on Twitter at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.